Good morning. Welcome to uh, the Tri-Village Congregation of Veritas Community Church. We're glad you've joined us this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy Hart. I'm one of the elders here at Veritas. If you've been with us over the, uh, the past few weeks, you've probably noticed a couple of things. First, you know that we're working our way this summer through the book of Genesis, specifically seeing the, the gospel of grace unfolded in this uh, first book of the Bible. Second, you know that there has been a, uh, a parade of elders preaching over the past few weeks. And uh, this is because Brad, the lead pastor of this congregation, is uh, on sabbatical this summer for a few weeks. The staff pastors at, uh, at Veritas work extraordinarily hard. And uh, we're happy to be able to give them and their families uh, extended periods every few years to rest and recharge, to seek the Lord and to be free of the demands of ministry for, for a time. Uh, this is a very healthy thing for our staff elders, for our, our broader elder team, and for the congregation here at Tri-Village, and for the larger congregation of, uh, at Veritas. So Brad and Courtney will return in a few weeks, but uh, until then, I'm afraid you're stuck with us. Uh, seriously, I, I do want to encourage you uh, to spend time praying for Brad and Courtney and uh, their girls as they finish up the sabbatical. Pray that they would be refreshed spiritually and physically and emotionally, and that the Lord uses uh, this time of, of rest to draw them into deeper intimacy with Him and with one another. Um, so, all right, this week, back in Genesis, uh, this week we're going to pick up the narrative uh, in the story of Jacob, not far from where we left off last week. We're going to be in Genesis 28, so please stand with me as we read Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There is none other, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it encourages, challenges, convicts, and moves our gaze from all of the issues and the problems and, and the stresses and questions that we're thinking about right now to where it belongs, to Jesus. I thank you for everyone here, and I pray that you would use your word to capture and transform their hearts. I acknowledge that uh, I'm but a weak and frail messenger and that there is no way any good comes from this sermon. There is no way any heart is comforted or encouraged. There's no way any repentance takes place. There's no way any affections for you are increased unless your spirit does that work by your grace. So please do your work in us, Father. We pray all of these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. All right, before we jump right into the meat of this narrative, we need to set up just a little bit of context. Now, we, as I said, we, we aren't far from where we left off last week, but some important things have happened uh, between where we left off this week and where our text for today picks up. So as you may recall, last week we saw Rebecca and Jacob conspire to trick an old blind Isaac into blessing Jacob rather than the son he wanted to bless, Esau. Esau, understandably, isn't so happy about this, uh, but he sees his father, Isaac, is, is about to die, and rather than exacting his revenge from his brother and, and bringing additional grief to his father uh, in his old age, Esau decides that he'll just wait to kill Esau after uh, his father dies. Now, Rebekah finds out about Esau's plan to kill Jacob, and what does she do? She develops a plan of her own. Rebecca first goes to Jacob and says something like, now this is Jeremy paraphrase, uh, says something like, listen, Jacob, Esau's going to kill you. So listen to your mama and run. Run fast, run far, go see my brother Laban, and don't come back until your brother has forgotten what you've done to him. In case you've forgotten, your brother's big, he's hairy, and he's a mean shot with a bow. Meaning, I don't think you're ever coming back because you took Esau's birthright and his blessing, and he's never going to forget. Then she assures him, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of your dad. Then Rebecca goes to Isaac, and she says, now, listen, sweetie, I, I just can't stomach the thought of Jacob marrying one of the women of this land, these Hittite women. Oh, my goodness. If, if he does, my life will simply be ruined. Send him to my brother Laban and Padanaram to find a wife. And then, then at least I know he'll be marrying a woman from my home and I can live with myself. Well, Isaac apparently didn't care much for Jacob's marrying options in the land of Canaan. And so just as Rebekah had planned, he sends him off to Laban in Padanaram. Now, Esau, seeing that his parents didn't like Canaanite women and that they had sent Jacob uh, to marry a woman from the motherland, decided that he was going to show them. He was going to stick it to them a little bit. So what, is he, what does he do? He goes to his uncle Ishmael, his, uh, his, his father's half-brother, and he marries one of his daughters. He marries a Canaanite girl, despite his parents. And that's where we pick up the story for today. Verse 10 of chapter 28 tells us that right after his mother uh, arranged for him to escape his brother's fury and then sold this plan to his father under nobler pretenses, 
says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, there's an important point that we need to draw out from the verses leading up to this account of Jacob's dream, and it's this. It's this. Sin is pervasive and sin is permeating. Now, I'm going to take you just on a little bit of a rabbit trail before we bring you back to the story of Jacob. Just hang in there with me for a second. If there's one thing that we've seen over and over and over again in the accounts that we've been studying in Genesis, it's that no one escaped the effects of the fall. No one. Not Adam and Eve, not Cain and Abel, not Abraham, and certainly not Isaac and his family. And not you or me either. Since Genesis 3, every human being has been infected with a sin nature that is hostile to God. Not only are we infected with a a sin nature, but our capacity for sin is endless. We have the ability to engage in and, and the propensity for monstrous acts. A prime example is what we saw last week when Jacob lied to his father and took the Lord's name in vain to obtain the blessing his father intended for Esau. Isaac says to Jacob, how are you back from hunting the game I asked you to kill uh, so quickly? And Isaac, having done nothing but go out to the pen and grab a goat and prepare it, replied, oh, the Lord gave me success. How shady is that? We've seen this before, though, haven't we? Cain kills Abel. Noah is God's instrument for preserving man and animals for the flood and then turns around and immediately gets wasted. Abraham pimps out his wife because he's scared of certain men, not once, but twice. You and I, though, are equally capable of such sin, aren't we? But for the transformation of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the grace of God in holding back our sinful nature, we would gladly engage in things that would make everyone here cringe or blush if I mentioned them. See, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Puritans understood this very well. And one Puritan writer said it like this. He said, oh God, it is amazing that men can talk so much about man's creaturely power and goodness when if thou didst not hold us back every moment, we should be devils incarnate. This, by bitter experience, thou hast taught me concerning myself. If you prefer Sylvester Stallone to the Puritans, he recognized this same reality. He simply said it like this. He said, if you think that people are inherently good, get rid of the police for 24 hours and see what happens. Sin is pervasive and sin permeates our natures. See, this reality just hammered me this week as I was preparing this sermon, as I read over and over of the deception and dysfunction in Isaac's family. And as I read, I was reminded of the necessity of realizing the presence of and the, and the depth of sin in our hearts. Why? Not to dwell on it, but because when we recognize the pervasiveness of sin and the depth to which we are affected by sin, we have no choice but to fall on God's grace. We realize that we are wholly inadequate to change our sinful hearts, that but for God's grace we would be doing all sorts 
of crazy things, and we become desperate for Jesus. Do you see that? As you grow in grace, you ought to see your sin with increasing clarity because you see the nature of God with increasing clarity. And as you compare the reality of God's moral perfection and His righteous standard to the state of your heart, you see that, you see that the outside, outside of God's grace, you have absolutely no hope. The cross of Christ becomes ever larger in your life as you depend not on yourself, but on the grace of God and Christ Jesus to overcome your decidedly evil and wicked heart. People of Veritas, as, as we spend time in the accounts of Genesis, don't miss the truths they teach about the reality of your heart apart from grace. The more you understand the devastation that resulted from the fall, the more you realize your need for the cross. Okay, wrap trail over, back to Jacob. The first thing that we see when we pick up our account of Jacob is that he's on the run from Esau. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, the trip to Haran wasn't a quick one. It's not like Jacob was running from Upper Arlington to Worthington or from Upper Arlington to Cleveland to escape his brother. The trip was about 600 miles. So this is like Jacob running from Upper Arlington to Atlanta to get away from Esau. He's not messing around. It's a long trip. It takes a long time to get there. As on one of his, as one of his travels, travel days ends, he reaches a rock, and he thinks, like we all do when we, uh, when we see a rock at night, like, hey, this looks like a good place to sleep. So he lays down and uses the rock as a pillow, and God gives him a dream. Sometimes I think that God gave him a dream. God used that rock to make him not sleep so well so they could give, give him a dream. But the first thing we need to notice about this scene is that God pursues Jacob. Jacob certainly wasn't looking for an encounter with God. He had just conned his dad into giving him the blessing intended for his brother, who was now coming after him. God was likely the last one, other than maybe Esau, that Jacob wanted to run into on the road to Haran. But in grace, in the midst of Jacob's sin, as Jacob was running from his sin, God comes to Jacob. Just like we've seen a lot of epic sin in Genesis, we've also seen God's relentless pursuit of sinners. God's pursuit of sinners should be becoming one of the dominating themes that you see in Genesis. It's there week after week. Remember, after Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, God seeks them out and, and graciously clothes them. After Cain kills Abel, God seeks him out, and he shows him grace. When the people at Babel were trying to build a, build a tower to make a name for themselves, God comes down to them, and he graciously refuses to let them have what they think that they need most. God pursues Abraham and calls him out of a life of worshiping pagan gods. And here we see God pursuing sinners once more. He meets Jacob in grace as he journeys to Padan Aram to escape his brother. God relentlessly pursues sinful men and women. He calls them into relationship with himself, and he works for, through them as he transforms them for his glory. 
Let's look at Jacob's dream. Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. Now, just this part of the dream alone must have been absolutely terrifying for Jacob. Here he is, fresh off an elaborate lie to his father to swindle him, his brother out of his father's blessing, a lie that he was able to, to cover by falsely saying that God gave him success in his hunt by taking God's name in vain. And this is what he sees, a ladder or a staircase connecting earth to heaven. Jacob is at the bottom, and God is standing over him at the top. Angels moving up and down the ladder, presumably coming to earth to do God's bidding. And God identifies himself. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So this would be just a little bit intimidating, don't you think? God the Father in his glory standing over you at the top of a massive staircase connecting heaven and earth while an army of angels moves between the two. At this point, Jacob has got to be thinking, if he could think while he, in the midst of this dream, oh shoot, he's real. Remember, up until this point, Jacob has, has undoubtedly heard of this God through Abraham, his grandfather, through Isaac, his father, but he has never personally encountered him. So, oh no, he's real. Is he going to strike me dead for taking Esau's birthright? For lying to dad? For saying that he gave me the success when I went hunting? Which of those angels is coming for me? Is he coming down those steps? I sure hope not. Though Jacob has never personally encountered God before, here he gets quite the introduction. And what comes next must have surprised Jacob. God didn't come down the stairs and destroy him. Gabriel didn't come after him with his flaming sword. No, God makes him promises. Look at the end of verse 13 and verse 14. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These are the promises that God made to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. These are the promises that God reaffirmed to Isaac. And now these are the promises that God is giving to Jacob. God promises that he will give Jacob the land where he lies, the land of Canaan, that he will have many offspring, and that all the world will be blessed through his family. But there's some immediate tension here, isn't there? God has just promised that he's going to give him the land on which he lies, but Jacob is headed out of that land. In fact, he's headed very far away from that land, 600 miles away to a land that, he hasn't, that hasn't been promised to him or to his father, or to his grandfather. And as far as Jacob is concerned, he's probably headed out of this land, out of the land of Canaan forever. After all, there happened to be one very angry, large, hairy man with a bow and arrow living in the land of Canaan who would like nothing more than to kill him. 
at this point, as Jacob was on his way out of Canaan, the promises to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac regarding the land of Canaan were probably ringing in his head. You might remember in Genesis 12, we saw God call Abram and define the land which he was promising to him and to his offspring to include the land of Canaan. In Genesis 26, when God reaffirms the promises that had first, be given, first been given to Abraham, when he reaffirms them to Isaac, uh, God makes a big deal out of the land. Specifically, God tells Isaac during a famine in the land of Canaan, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. Did you hear that? Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Stay in these lands. So what did Jacob do? What is Jacob to do? Jacob is thinking the promises of God that this God has made to my grandfather and to my father, they've been tied up to this land. And I'm going out. I'm going away, and I'm never coming back. Fortunately, God doesn't stop with the promises that he's made to Abraham and to Isaac, but he makes Jacob three new promises. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. First, God promises Jacob that even though he is leaving the promised land, he's not going alone. He's not leaving God in Canaan while he goes alone to Padan Aram. God will go with him. Now, you and I aren't, aren't likely surprised by this, but to Jacob, this would have, been a, would have been radical because in Jacob's time and culture, gods weren't thought, were thought to be localized having power and, and giving protection only within their, their territories. And here God is telling him, no, no, that's not how it is. I've made a promise to you and your family, to you, to all of creation, and there's nowhere on this earth that you can go and I won't be with you. Second, and to reinforce the first promise, God promises to keep Jacob regardless of where he goes. The word keep is a word that's used in, for in shepherding to describe how a shepherd protects his helpless sheep. And so God is not only going with Jacob out, out of Canaan, God will protect Jacob. Listen to Psalm 121. It shows, it shows us how the word keep is used here. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So God not only promises that he's going with him, but God promises that as he goes with Jacob, wherever he goes, he is his protector. He is his keeper. 
Third, God promises to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan. Contrary to what Jacob was probably thinking, and contrary to what his mother Rebekah was likely thinking when she sent him away, Jacob is not going to be a resident alien in a foreign land for the rest of his life. God is going to bring him back to the land that he promised him. And finally, God sums up all of these promises with a personal guarantee. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. These promises are pure grace. Pure grace. There was absolutely nothing that Jacob did to deserve these promises from God. Nothing. In fact, what Jacob deserved was for God to strike him dead on the rock where he lay. But instead, God pursued the sinful, inadequate, manipulating, lying, cowardly man and lavished him in his grace. If we peek ahead in history, we see that God made good on all of his promises and continues to comfort Jacob through the promise and reality of his presence. Jacob goes to, to Padan Aram to his uncle Laban. He marries. He accumulates massive wealth, though his uncle Laban does just about all he can to prevent him from doing so. And then God, God calls Jacob in chapter 31 of Genesis to return to the land of your ancestors and your kindred. And again, reiterates, when God makes this call, he reiterates to Jacob, I will be with you. When Jacob is old, after his name is changed from, is from Jacob to Israel, we'll look at that in a few weeks, and after God has made provision for Jacob's family through a severe famine, through his once thought dead son Joseph, God tells Jacob to go live in Egypt, out of the land of Canaan. And he tells him, I myself go with you down to Egypt. God continues to keep his promise to the nation that bears Jacob's new name, Israel. During the Babylonian exile, God promises to be with Israel. In Isaiah 41.10, God says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. And again in chapter 43, God tells Israel, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Throughout Jacob's life and the history of the people that, that came from him, the nation of Israel, the people have always been comforted by the promise that God gave Jacob that night on the rock at Bethel. I am with you wherever you go. God's promise of his presence to his people has a larger fulfillment than we see in, in Israel's history. God's promise of his presence is fulfilled in a way that, that no one could anticipate, but in a way that we all desperately needed. God himself came to be with man as a man in Jesus. God's promise of, of presence to his people is fulfilled in its fullest sense in the man of Jesus Christ. When telling of Jesus' birth, Matthew says that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John says it like this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, God with us. Jesus himself made it clear that God's promise of presence to Jacob was fulfilled for all of God's people in him. In John 1, at the end of John 1, verse 43 through 50, uh, 51, as Jesus spoke with Nathanael uh, under the fig tree, you might remember the story. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him. He said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then he said to him, listen closely, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar? Here, by referencing the ladder that Jacob saw in his dream, part of what Jesus is saying is that I am the ladder that Jacob saw. For all of Israel's history, God has promised you His presence, and now I am here in the flesh. The connection between heaven and earth is a man. It is me. My purpose here is to reconcile, to reconnect God and man once and for all. To provide a way that men may be able to experience and live forever in the presence of God. Through the shedding of His blood, for the forgiveness of our sins, Jesus did just that. He created a way that sinful man could live in the presence of a holy God for all of eternity. And though Jesus has returned to his Father for the time being, God is still with us. As he commissioned his disciples to go into all the world preaching the gospel, Jesus promised, I am, I am with you always. God is currently with us through the presence of His Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians tells us that those who trust Jesus are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. God has promised to be with us. God is with us. This being true, that God has promised to, to be and is in fact with us wherever we go must have a massive impact on our daily lives. Wouldn't you agree? I want to wrap up by, by talking through two ways that the reality of God's presence must change our lives. And they're really opposite sides of, of the same coin. The first is simply this. Do not fear. Do not fear. Throughout Scripture, more than anything else, what we see connected to the, to the reality of God's presence is the command not to fear. Now, you're thinking what do I have to fear? I live comfortably. People like me. I've got a good job. I've got enough friends. I've got a healthy family. But deep down in your gut, you know that any one of these things or any one of a hundred other things that you love and hold dear can be snatched away in an instant. And you fear that. You fear that your children are going to get sick that your marriage isn't going to survive. You fear that you won't have enough money to pay the bills 
this month. You fear that you will lose your job. You fear that people at work won't accept you if they find out that you love Jesus. You fear that your husband or your wife won't forgive you if you confess hidden sin to them. You fear that your children won't be educated well. You fear that others will find out that you're not actually the person that you appear to be and that you're actually broken, hurting, and messed up. You fear moving away from this community to go to a new state for a new job. You fear that you will continue to wallow in the same sin struggles that have plagued you for the rest of your life. You fear your own inadequacy. You fear that you really can't be forgiven, that you can't really be loved, that all of the promises of the gospel are too good to be true. If you fear any of those things today, or if you have ever feared any of those things, hear me now. Do not fear. God is with you. God is with you. The flip side of do not fear is be comforted. Do not fear, but be comforted. Be comforted in the fact that you aren't moving to that new state alone. You're not going into the new job alone. You're not opening your heart and confessing sin to your husband or your wife or community alone. You're not you're not going to work every day and interacting with the people there alone. You're not engaging in on mission alone, with your neighbors and on mission alone. You're not walking through your child's sickness alone. Be comforted. God is with you. And you know this. You know that God is with you because he promised to be with you, and because he sent his son to die with all of these fears and doubts and shame and sin on his shoulders so that you could be with him. Be comforted, because though you are inadequate, Jesus is sufficient. Be comforted, because though you can do nothing to become forgivable, Jesus graciously made a way for you to be forgiven. Be comforted, because though you were unlovable, Jesus mercifully loved you. And let the radical, brazen, too-good-to-be-trueness of the gospel comfort you with its truth. Brothers and sisters, be comforted. God is with you. Now, it's one thing to say, do not fear. Be comforted, because God is with you. And it's another thing altogether to actually believe it in the trenches of life, in the day-to-day struggles of life. You see, we've heard it said that, that God is with us so often that it's almost become platitudinous. It's almost cliche. And so, though it's easy to say that we believe that God is with us when everything is right in our worlds, once difficulty sets in, Once life gets hard, once we enter into struggles, we almost immediately begin to believe that we have been forsaken. In those moments, brothers and sisters, preach the gospel to your weary hearts. Ask your community to preach the gospel to you. Pray that God would give you the grace to believe the gospel. Read God's word and bask in the truth of the gospel because the truth is that Jesus promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the reason he could promise that is because he hung on a cross and was forsaken on your behalf 
so that you would never have to be forsaken, so that you may always be comforted by the truth that God is with you. This is not a feel-good, God-is-with-you type message. This is, this is communicating the truth that God is with us because it is a blood-bought promise of grace. People of Veritas, God is with you. Therefore, be comforted. Do not fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises and reality of your presence. We thank you that Jesus died so that we might be with you forever. Help our weary and fearful hearts to take comfort in your presence. Forgive our unbelief. Forgive our unnecessary fear. Turn our eyes and hearts towards Jesus, we pray. Amen.